Well, Phil is shortly going to come and explain God's word to us. And we're going to look, be looking at a part of the Bible, uh, Genesis 37, verses 1 to 11. It's a new series that we're starting this morning, uh, looking at the life of Joseph. It's going to be a real encouragement uh, to us. So go and grab a Bible. Emily is shortly going to read uh, that passage to us. Uh, but go and grab your Bible, open it up to Genesis 37, 1 to 11. And Emily is going to read that to us now. I'm going to be reading to you um, this morning from Genesis 37, verses 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers. They hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Well, this morning we're starting a new series going through the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's a story that's going to be familiar to most of us, a ripping yarn full of drama, conflict, envy, desperate circumstances and supernatural intervention. And yet at the same time, if we simply see these chapters as a good story or a moral tale, then we'll fail to see the point of why it's in the Bible. You see, the story of Joseph is actually the story of God's faithfulness to his people, even when they're faithless. It's the story of God's word bringing salvation to the world. And the passage that we're looking at today shows us how much Jacob and his sons needed God. It lays the backdrop for the salvation story that is to follow. As the story of Joseph begins... The Bible is keen for us to see that Jacob and his sons were far from God. Morally, they were corrupt and socially they were a mess. 
Unlike the musical Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the real story of Joseph starts not with a catchy tune, but with the nightmare of a dysfunctional family. And this is why we need to read this. You see, on one level, we relate to this story because we live in a dysfunctional world and we need God. And on another level, the story tells us God's word is at work in this world. That amazingly, God continues to draw people to himself, even though this world is broken. I hope that's a comfort and a great hope for us this morning as we go through this passage together. What we're going to do is first spend some time looking at the wider story of Jacob, Jacob and his family, and then we'll move on to look at the opening section of the story. So the first point is the wider story, the wider story. Verses one and two give us the briefest of outlines, and yet they're historically important. Let me read them to you. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. They're quite simple, but in order for us to see the historical importance, we have to turn to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. They say this, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Jacob's grandfather was Abraham. And in those verses, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be made into a great nation that they would be given land and that they would be a blessing to all nations. And, and spoiler alert here, the rest of the Bible is about God fulfilling those promises. Ultimately, he fulfills those promises through Jesus. How so? Well, it's because all who trust in Jesus become his people. They belong to his kingdom and come under the blessing of his rule. And one day they will inherit a new heaven and new earth and new earth and live with Jesus forever. So the Bible traces those promises all the way through uh, the Bible to the birth of Jesus in chapter one and beyond. And because those promises were made to Abraham, verse two of our chapter implies that Jacob is important to God's plans. That's made even clearer by the contrast between chapter 36 and this first verse of chapter 37. You see, the preceding chapter Chapter 36 is another branch of the family tree, a record of Jacob's brother Esau's descendants. They were the Canaanites. And the contrast between chapter 36 and chapter 37 is this. Chapter 36 may be full of successful men, full of powerful leaders, fathers of nations in their own right. But none of them were the children of Jacob, Israel. None of them were the inheritors of God's promises. None of them would be the ancestors of the Son of God. And that is the point of verse 2. Verse 2 tells us this is the account of Jacob's line. It's a verse full of promise, full of hope, full of joy, because in contrast to chapter 36, chapter 37 begins the story of the history of people of Israel, the ancestors of Jesus. In other words, 
Verse 2 says, these are the people that matter because by them, God's promised saviour would come. Isn't that great? And yet when we look at these opening verses of Genesis 37, what we would expect from God's people is more than what we see. Because rather than being a tight-knit family living God's way and in relationship with God, they are disparate, faithless and lawless. And Genesis very honestly records all of the sad and sinful ways in detail. So Genesis 34 uh, tells us how two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, had slaughtered a whole tribe of Canaanites because some of them had disgraced their sister. In Genesis 35, we read how another of Jacob's sons, Reuben, had slept with one of his father's concubines. And it tells us that Jacob was weak and weak and gutless because he does nothing about it. And yet into this situation, where God's people are not living in relationship with God, God's plans are still working because God is faithful to his promises. And I hope that is, that is a comfort and a security to us today, because if God planned over the course of 2000 years of history that he would deliver a saviour for the world through the descendants of Jacob, in spite of what they were like, and it happened, then we can be sure that God's commitment to his promises through Christ will be fulfilled as well. In other words, if God has promised it, then it will come about. No matter what it looks like or feels like, God's kingdom is advancing in this world because God is working out his promised salvation in this world. However, if the context is full of hope, it's fair to say that as we've seen a little bit already, the situation was also full of brokenness. And that's the title for our second point, a situation full of brokenness. Look, we'll look with me at verses three to four. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. It's a subtle comment on the sins of Jacob. You see, he actually had four wives and it was a family built on jealousy and deceit. His first wife was Leah. Actually, Jacob never intended to marry Leah. He wanted to actually marry Rachel, his second wife, whom he loved. But on that first wedding day, Jacob's father-in-law switched the daughters and tricked Jacob into marrying Leah. And then a little while after that first wedding, Jacob was then allowed to marry Rachel as well. So with two wives under one roof, Jacob loved Rachel and tolerated Leah. But then Leah quickly bore Jacob children and that stoked up a jealousy between Leah and Rachel. Leah was jealous of Rachel because Jacob loved Rachel. But Rachel was jealous of Leah because Leah gave Jacob his children. Throw into the mix the fact that Rachel was so jealous that she gave Jacob her servant Bilhah to sleep with so that she could be a surrogate mum. And that was quickly copied by Leah with her servant Zilpah. And then eventually Rachel became pregnant and added two more sons to them all. The family descended into a mess. Without meaning to, Jacob ended up with four mothers of his 12 sons. And because of the rivalry between them, bitterness and jealousy haunted their every step. And it's not difficult to see why Jacob's son grew up to be deceivers and adulterers and murderers themselves. 
it's not difficult to trace the heart of Joseph's brother's hatred back to the discord and jealousy that they grew up in. It's a passage that teaches us a lot about family relationships. One lesson it teaches is to deal with our sin honestly and openly. Why do we need to do that? Well, we need to do it because our children are idolaters and Pharisees, just like their parents. And I know that for some of us, that's a shocking statement, but that is the heart of us all. So being our idolaters, our children will take our actions and our mannerisms and our sins and make them their own because they want to be like us. And similarly, like good Pharisees, they will justify their sin by saying, well, you know, daddy does it or mummy does it. So it must be OK. If we're greedy, they will be greedy too. Why? Because they will see our greed and copy it. And what's more, they will justify their greed <clears throat> as right because they're sinners like us. They will like being greedy and they will uh, like being right in their greed. That's what we see with Jacob and his sons. Right throughout his life, Jacob was a deceiver and a liar, a man who often failed to tell the truth, a man who often avoided difficult situations with deceit or weakness to confront wrong. And it bred a culture of tale telling and grumbling and conspiracy theories. Verse two of our, our passage, for example, tells us that Joseph at the age of 17 was still telling tales about his brothers. Honestly, Joseph, grow up. It's an eye-opening passage, isn't it? So how do we break the cycle of dysfunction? I think the biggest way of breaking the cycle of sin is by being honest with our children about our sin and sin's grip on us. When we do something wrong, let's be humble enough to say how wrong we've been and let's be quick to confess our sin to God before our family, naming our sins specifically. And let's be honest enough to ask for forgiveness from our children when we sin and when they see us sin. So we break the cycle of sin by showing our children how to deal with sin at the cross, with humility and honesty and confession and forgiveness. They go a long way to breaking dysfunction. Another lesson this passage teaches us is uh, to avoid favouritism. Now, uh, let me be honest, some of our children are easier than others of our children. That's life. But to avoid favouritism, it's good to find a reason for each child to be equally our favourite so that they develop in different. So as they develop in different ways, we get to celebrate their differences and affirm them in their differences. And we've got to try not to let a day go by without lots of hugs and kisses and affirmation. More than these practical things, we can learn from Jacob's weakness of character to insist that we pray with our children and young people and immerse them in God's word as a family, even though they may not want to. But let me also be real here. Many of us, and myself included, have lived through broken family situations. But the underlying hope in this story is that God uses our brokenness. Actually, the only material he has ever had to work with is fallen, sinful and dysfunctional people like us. Which means that if your past is one you'd rather forget, then let the story of Joseph give us hope that God is big enough to take the brokenness and restore it and use it for his good will. Their situation was full of brokenness, and yet God had not yet finished with them. And that brings us to our third point this morning. God speaks to a broken world. 
it's a measure of God's grace that God still speaks into their situation. And God didn't have to, he didn't need to, and yet, because his intention is to save the world from the slavery of the mess that sin leads us in, he does. So God speaks to Jacob and his sons by giving Joseph two dreams. As we'll see later on, dreams were often considered in the ancient world to be from God. And what makes these two dreams of Joseph obviously from God is that they were very similar to one another. They follow a similar pattern. The first dream about corn promises that in the coming famine, Joseph would save his brothers. The second goes further than, than that because it says that not just his brothers would be saved by Joseph, but also his father and his mother. And on the face of it, it looks like Joseph's big-headedness had reached new levels. Even his father, who wouldn't normally have said a bad word about Joseph, thought it was a bridge too far. Let me read to you verse 10. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? He's outraged, isn't he? And yet because these dreams are repeated and they're separate incidents, well, there should have been a clue there. Those dreams were from God. God was telling them that a future for them would unfold. And the message is simple. God was giving Jacob's family both a warning and a promise. A warning of impending disaster, that a famine would come upon them, and a promise of a faithful saviour, that God would raise up Joseph to save them. Now we're told that the family quickly dismissed Joseph. But as readers, there is comfort and hope as God speaks to Joseph and his brothers. You see, in the very action of speaking, God is reaching out to a broken world and saving it. He doesn't have to. He's not compelled to. There's no higher authority telling God what to do or how to do it. God speaks into this world and reaches out through his word because that is his purpose and his will and his plan. And by speaking to them, it teaches us that God sees this world and has compassion on it in all its sinfulness and brokenness. And his purpose is to save us from the mess that our sin has made it. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, then this is the hope in, in, in the God who speaks. God wants to deal with our broken world today, just like he wanted to deal with Jacob's broken world in this story. And today God does that by sending his son, Jesus. I won't explain it all now, but the truth of the matter is, if we want to hear God speak to us in the middle of our confused and broken world, then we need to listen to his final word, his son, Jesus Christ. If you want clarity in this world, if you want direction and truth, then find out about Jesus. Do you know, as a church, we run a, a Christianity Explore course. It's simply a five uh, evening course. It's an opportunity for people to explore for themselves who Jesus is and how he makes it possible for us to hear God more and more clearly and know him. We've got one starting on Tuesday by Zoom. Why don't you join us to hear more about God's word for us today? That leads us on to our final point. 
which is simply this, Joseph's family responds to God's word. We don't know whether Joseph knew he was preaching God's words to his brother or whether brothers, or, or whether he was just sharing a weird couple of dreams that he had had. But the response of his brothers was to reject what he said. Let me read to you verse 8 again. They hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he said. So rather than think any more about it, the brothers hated Joseph all the more. Now, sadly, this is not an uncommon reaction to God's word. Joseph was not the first person to be rejected for speaking God's word. Hundreds of years before Joseph, Abel spoke God's word to his brother Cain, encouraging him to offer the right sacrifice to God. But Abel was killed for it by Cain. Also, Noah preached a, uh, and prophesied a dreadful judgment from God, a flood. He did that for 120 years and was rejected every day for all those years. Not one person believed him for all that time. Even more astonishingly, 2,000 years after Joseph, when Jesus, the Son of God, appeared on earth, in person, speaking the very words of God as God himself, he was mocked and beaten and rejected and killed. So the brother's response was hatred and rejection. The response through history has been hatred and rejection for God's word and, and a not uncommon response to God's word today, uh, even today, is hatred and rejection. Why so? Why is it so aggressively negative? Well, people reject God's word because our human nature wants to be in control of our lives and not anyone else. And because we want to be in control of our lives, we reject the God who is actually in control of our lives. We're a bit like those people in the supermarkets who don't respect the one-way system. The system is for our good. The system is telling us to go one way. And yet people reject the instructions and do their own thing. And woe betide, by the way, if you point it out. In spite of the brother's rejection of God's word, however, there is a hint of hope at the end of the story in Jacob's response to God's word. Let me read it to you. His brothers, in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. It's great, isn't it? That final comfort is that Jacob, Jacob at least, kept what Joseph had said in his mind. In other words, in the midst of his broken and dysfunctional family, there was a familiarity to those dreams that gave Jacob hope. Hope that God had not finished with them. Hope that they would one day be reconciled to God and to one another by God's power and strength. And this is the hope for Christians this morning. Through his church, God is reaching out to this world in what we say, in the way we are together, in the way we serve our community. God is speaking to this world. And history tells us that the natural response to God's word is to reject it. That's OK. But God's promise is that he will continue to reach out to this world. And in spite of the response, he will change people's hearts to listen. That's what happened to us personally when we became Christians. That's what's happening all over the world. And therefore, no matter how people respond to the word of God, our assurance is that God is working and that God is moving and that God is bringing sinners like us into a relationship with him, just like we see him doing to Joseph and his brothers. 
And I hope that gives us confidence. What Joseph and his brothers needed the most was the love of God. We'll see what happens to them in the coming weeks. But the same goes for this world today. This world needs to hear about Jesus's love, to heal spiritually, to restore a broken and sin-filled world to God's love. Well, let's all the more take the time to tell those around us, to invite them to Christianity Explored, to invite them to read the Bible with us. We will be treated like Joseph was treated. But let's be confident that God is at work to bring this world to himself. And in that confidence, let's be encouraged. Let's take great joy that God is at work and God is moving. His word is powerfully changing this world for his glory and for his plan. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this challenging passage, a passage that uh, teaches us to be humble uh, as families and to be good role models as parents and to continually bring our families before you in prayer, in your word, in love. Father God, I, help, I, I, I pray that you would help us um, to love our children more and more and more, to rejoice in, um, in who they are. Lord God, I pray that you would teach us more and more to praise them, to encourage them, to build them up. Father God, may we also find comfort that you are speaking to this world. Speaking today through your son, Jesus Christ, and through your church. And even though the, the world might reject you, Father God, you have never given up on the world. And you continue to use your church to reach out to sinners like us to bring us into relationship with you. Lord God, we pray uh, for our Christianity Explore course and those um, attending. Lord, I pray that you would um, more and more reveal yourself to, to them. May they just be encouraged and blown away by the person of Jesus. May they be um, uh, so wonderfully uh, convinced that Jesus is the final and fullest revelation of God who brings us into relationship with you. Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.